0: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network in staff, and management.
1: Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Mary Booser, LCSW. She's a licensed social worker and former Rikers Island mental health chief. Her new book is Lockdown on Rikers, Shocking Stories of Abuse and Injustice at New York's Notorious Jail. Uh, after completing her degree, uh, social work Mary Busser worked at Rikers Island in a maximum security facility for male inmates. At the dawn of the city's stop and frisk policy, uh, seeing a flood of unprecedented arrests and the biggest jailhouse buildup in New York City history. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Mary.
1: Thank you. Very nice to be here, Catherine.
2: Well, this is quite a book you've written. Uh, There's a lot to talk about, obviously. A lot of it it, it is related to what's happening today uh, in our political situation, yeah. But let's start with the book specifically because you're talking about these horrific, horrific casualties of what happens when uh, prisoners uh, become incarcerated, let's say, at Rikers Island, male and female. So let's, the jumping-off point for the book was what for you? Well, um,
1: that's a great question. I had not started off on Rikers with any ideas of writing a book. I started off as a student intern, um, a social work intern. I was assigned to the women's jail, the mental health department. It was a great experience for me. Um I believed in the dignity of all life, the capacity for people to change, and I saw this incarceration period maybe as a time to help people to kind of find their way um, before they went back out in the world uh, to help them get through issues such as drug addiction and just general chaos that people kind of brought with them after they'd been arrested and I would learn their histories. Um, I never felt unsafe, I felt very comfortable, I connected easily with the women, and just by way of background for people, Rikers Island is a complex of ten jails on an island in the, the East River of New York, just off LaGuardia Airport. At the time that I was there, uh, the population was at 24,000 people, which a uh, standard prison like Attica, um, upstate prisons, might be 2,000. Gives you an idea of its size. Um, so my first year went very well. I connected well with the women. Everything that I had hoped for um, panned out. Um, and then I returned to Rikers as a full-timer after I got my degree. And as you mentioned, I was assigned to a maximum security men's jail and that's really for me where the wheel started just coming off.
2: Um, so that was the turning point for you. Uh, I, and for yeah. those who don't really know about Rikers, I think maybe we give a little bit more. Like you see, yeah. twenty-four thousand prisoners. It's also one of those places. And I live in New York City most of the time. It's like Rikers is, uh, you know, that's that's the end of the line. I mean, it right. has that kind of a reputation, yeah. <laughs> um, even know. on, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about SVU, you know, they are always, you know, in the uh, the television series, you know, Rikers Island, you know, that's, uh, you've had it if you go to Rikers. But anyway, so that's... Uh, yes, go and, ahead. And,
1: and it's important for people to really understand more, because we do see it in the headlines, and as you say, you know, that's really uh, Rikers Island. But in fact, Rikers Island is actually, um, it's a jail complex versus a prison, and the difference being being that when people are arrested and charged with a crime, if they can't make bail, then they are incarcerated. If they can, then they stay home while they are work through their case, ultimately learning whether they're guilty, innocent, whatever. But if you don't have the bail, uh, uh, the bail money, then you're remanded to jail. And in Rikers Island is for people in the five boroughs of New York who've been arrested who can't afford bail so this is a population of people who are innocent until proven guilty they have not been convicted eighty percent of the population at rikers are what's known as detainees so that tells you right off the bat that the rikers population is poor by virtue of the fact that they cannot afford bail and this struck me when i started working in the men's jail right off the bat is just a gross inequity how could it be I mean, we look at someone like Bill Cosby, who was arrested. His case is still being worked through. We don't know in the end whether it will be guilt or innocence. But during the process, he is at home with his family because he could pay it for people who can't afford it. And I was shocked when I was on Rikers to discover that the bail amounts could be, um, very often, a few hundred dollars. I met people there whose bail was one dollar, and it might as well have been a million dollars, but
2: because so how ca- why couldn't they get out? You're the social worker. You're there. One dollar. No one can raise monies for, or there aren't any funds, or there are no way. You're talking about a $1, dollar, even a hundred dollars. Talking about a $1, dollar, um,
1: hundred dollars.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I, <laughs> my heart, you know, my heartstrings were so tugged because I wanted to just bail when I learned, I'm like, I could pay that and get you out of here. We were not allowed uh, legally to bail anyone out. Correctional personnel were not permitted to bail people out. Whenever I found someone with a bail of a buck, I would try to track down the the jail chaplain. They could frequently, they were allowed to put up the dollar bail, but the thing is that the numbers are so great of people who, um, you know, it's not an occasional person for a couple of hundred bucks. It's so many people. It's thousands of people, which shows you the level of impoverishment. And then the next issue is that so many people are there, they want trial. And um, what I discovered after I discovered this unfairness in bail is um, was the wait for a trial could be years and years. And I'll give you a case in point. I think a lot of people are familiar with the story of Khalif Browder, 16 years old, arrested in New York City for swiping a backpack. He did not do it. He said he did not do it. He was in the, the patrol car. The police said, "We'll just go to the station, get it straightened out. Well, fast forward three years on Rikers Island, he waited for his trial for his day in court nothing happened he refused they kept offering him plea offers say you did it you can go home and he refused he spent close to two years in solitary confinement he was beaten and he refused to say he did something that he did not do ultimately the charges were dropped but this young man went home at nineteen twenty years old and was just no longer the carefree teenager he'd once been. And um, when he was 22, he killed himself. And this made headlines. Barack Obama, our president, referenced him in a speech. He was kind of the poster child for Rikers Island. And I met many people like him who said, I didn't do it, um, and I want to go to trial, but... I would learn. You would. When I came there as a social worker, I was also an idealistic American about our judicial system. And then I learned I couldn't tell people anymore not to to take a cop out. In the beginning, I would say, hold on for your day in court. You have to do what's right. But they also had to survive Rikers Island. And if they'd had bail money, they could be at home and say, I'm not accepting this. It became a big arm twist to get people to say that they did things that they may not
2: have done. So we're talking about thousands and thousands of people every all every day, every year in a system that obviously as you're describing it doesn't work and it seems to me that we're creating more prisoners even if in the beginning they weren't they were not people who committed crimes by the time they get out of there they they are going to be individuals who do commit crimes just given their experience at likers why? Are, yeah. Why do we continue this kind of? Yeah. Why are we continuing this kind of incarceration? Yeah.
1: Well, I think <laughs> a lot of, of thank God um, it took me. I after I left Rikers and I left when I left Rikers, I was the acting chief of mental health in the 500 cell solitary confinement unit, and that was really it for me. Um, I just it just became. Um, a moral dilemma. Um, I was also becoming desensitized. It was—I'll um, talk a little more, a bit more about that. But after I left Rikers, I thought I can't leave here without um, trying to write about it, trying to tell people. And it took me ten years uh, to get my book published, written, and published because there wasn't much interest or. Um, sympathy for accused criminals, everyone just thought, oh, Rikers, you must be terrible if you're there, we're not coddling people, etc., but bit by bit, you know, this is a humanitarian issue, that wall has eroded, a light now is being shown on Rikers and at jails and prisons across the country, and we are starting to see change. The bail issue across the country is starting to be addressed as just this gross unfairness people get locked up, not by virtue of guilt or innocence, but by virtue of money. So we're starting to see change, which is is very, very encouraging. Um, What kind of
2: change? Like you're talking about the bail issue, and people now are aware of the problem, books like yours, obviously, which are great. So let's say, so what's the difference? Well, in New York, let's just start,
1: in in New York City, uh, there's something called the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund that I'm familiar with. Um, In particular, this is an organization that that realized uh, what was the unfairness of this bail situation, started a fund for um, people who had been arrested for nonviolent offenses but could not afford bail, they're putting up the bail. They're putting it up, and the big question is, bail serves as insurance that someone will show up for their hearings. Um, the big question was, will people show up if the bail is put up? Well, they learned that 99% of the people that they put post-bail for are showing up for their hearings, but just able to keep their jobs and come from home. So this has been super effective and and very um Enlightening. Um, there are other community funds in New York, but in a bigger way, uh, the state of Maryland is introducing a statewide bail reform. Um, other states are, are, are exploring it as well. I think that this is going to, to happen and it's, it's long overdue, but, um, we're seeing this change. We're seeing,
2: now that's a humanitarian, which is great. This is a humanitarian. Uh, obviously issue that's being addressed but people also are tend to make change uh, even coming from a social worker i can say this if it impacts on their pocketbook so because the prison yeah. systems cost are very very costly and let's take rikers island how much does it cost taxpayers and does want do we need to show the public that hey if we do it in a different way you're not going to be paying all this money out of pocket for something that that shouldn't exist in the first place
1: yeah that's a very good point point. It costs the estimated cost of incarcerating someone on Rikers Island is two hundred and eight thousand dollars a year, which is a staggering amount of money. It's it's more than it costs to send a, you know someone to college um, for a year. It's it's very um, a very disturbing, disturbingly high number. So yes, the public would benefit. Um, from a reduction in <laughs> excuse me, the number of detainees on Rikers Island and the numbers have been shrinking largely due to changes in the Rockefeller drug laws but there's another little piece of this Rikers Island is the main source of prisoners for the upstate prison system and many prisons upstate rely on their prisons for their local economy for employment in the, in the prisons Um, So while you're saving money on one hand, um, if we're really putting this into dollars and cents uh, uh, terms, um, there's going to be, with reduced numbers of people being found guilty and going upstate, which is what will happen, um, you're going to get a shrinking prison population, which could be an economic issue for certain towns, for sure. And
2: And so how do we rectify that? What do we do? What's that? I said. What do we do? That's that's an excellent point. Uh, so yeah. we're taking away jobs from people in these small communities where these these uh, big prisons are upstate. What's yeah. the replacement?
1: Well, I think dr- that's something that's going to, have to be faced by those communities. Other sources of of their, of an economic. Uh, um, I don't know. Um, some other avenues have to be developed. But there is an incentive, and I'm not saying that it's conscious, but there is certainly an incentive to um, keep these prisons full. And, um, you know, a lot of, I met a lot of people on Rikers who had been upstate, and they joked. They said that the guards up there would say when they were being released, you know, uh, you all come back now, you know, I need a boat or something, or I need a, you know, a, a nicer vacation next year, as a joke. But we need prisoners here, and so there, there is something to the word, prison, to the term, prison industry. But if it's um, if it's legitimately um, derived, that's fine. But if it's derived because people are poor and they're out of the gate at the point of arrest on an unfair foot, then that's that's wrong. That can't be.
2: All right now, let's talk about solitary confinement because you said that was sort of the area where you had had it. You you had reached your I don't know if you're the peak or the nadir, whichever. But you you that was it for you, um, and that was it
1: for me, yeah,
2: yeah, that was it for you. So let's talk about what is solitary confinement in the context of Rikers Island.
1: Okay, well, um, it was a uh, and is a five story tower, 100 cells on each floor. So it's a 500-cell solitary confinement unit um, referred to in the slang for some reason. It was given the name The Bing. So everyone on Rikers knew about The Bing. Um, it is on Rikers the jail within jail. It would be used for... Um, to handle uh, jailhouse infractions such as fighting, um, disobeying orders, assault on staff. Um, if someone engaged in that type of behavior, they'd get something called a ticket, and the ticket came with it a certain amount of time in the bing. So you'd be bused over. If you picture Rikers almost like a like a barbed wire campus, you'd be bused down the road over to this to the bing and placed in a cell and depending on the severity of the offense it could be a week, it could be two weeks, it could be three months the tickets could also pile up, it could be years um, the max on one ticket would be three months for assault on staff while I was there all 500 cells were full now before I got uh, to this particular post everyone on the island knew about the being its reputation was that it was for the worst of the worst, the baddest of the bad, kind of the Hannibal lectors of Rikers Island. So it was with a little bit of trepidation that I arrived there not knowing you know, really what to expect. And um, what I found was, first of all, for a mental health department, we had a very, very heavy involvement, heavy presence in this unit. Uh, virtually everyone was on some type of medication. And I remember my first day there walking through the jail over to um, this particular unit, the chief saying to me, Mary, if they had no mental health issues before they entered solitary, they do now. So that really told me um, just how mentally rigorous solitary confinement is. And it's essentially a cell, as you can imagine that, maybe the size of a parking space, a small cot, sink, toilet, um, a door with a small plexiglass window on the top and on the bottom a flap through which uh, food trays can be passed. On Rikers Island, there was each cell had a small window with mesh over it, but you could see out a little bit. In a lot of upstate prisons, there's no windows at all. Um, so that was a little bit of something I saw as a positive as I got closer and started to see what this punishment really is. And... Um, what I found was that people broke down. Uh, they broke down badly. We had a lot of attempted suicides, a lot of self-cutting, uh, feces smearing, head banging. I was called to a cell virtually every single day to assess the mental status of the occupant of the cell. I would be there with our psychiatrist and with a team, whoever was there. Um, and what surprised me the most was that I didn't find these people to be particularly different than the general population. I never found a Hannibal Lecter. Um, I found most had impulse control disorders, kind of those young boys who grow to young men who, it's not they can't obey or won't obey, it's more like they can't. Um, I found it to be a very sad situation and I found also as I dug a little deeper, that four out of five of the occupants of these cells were in there for nonviolent offenses, walking out of a housing area wearing a hat, uh, disobeying an order that maybe they didn't understand. The most minor thing could wind you in solitary confinement, and I found that...
2: So what good can come of this? What, what 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 good could come of doing this to people, torturing them, actually? Um,
1: well, that's
2: as you're describing... That's the, word, yeah.
1: Catherine, the United Nations, in the last few years, decreed that Anything beyond 15 days in solitary confinement constitutes torture. And there's no doubt in my mind that this is what it is. Um, what good com- can come of it? I believe it's a management tool, that correctional facilities, it's a way to manage people who might be nuisance-like. Uh, you do have a small percentage who are violent, who are problematic. Um, four out of five non-violent, but that fifth, yes, but why a human being has to be locked down oh, i should add to this a cell 23 hours a day with very little human contact uh no phone privileges you can you're taken out once a day if you want to in shackles to stand in a cage and look at the sky that's recreation um, there's really nothing that i can see rede- redeeming about it and even for the worst uh Behavior problems. I don't understand why it has to be that extreme. Uh, Why, you know, 23 hours a day? And and they'll put people in for years in in these solitary confinement units. And they will always say that these are very dangerous people, but I found that most are not at all. That's not the case. And since I, I left Rikers and I've met people who've been in solitary and upstate prisons you could go to solitary for too many postage stamps for the most ridiculous things imaginable and as I was looking at people just these agonized faces uh, at the end of their rope uh, you know going through great lengths to try to get some kind of a reprieve I also thought of myself as that social worker you know who worked in that women's jail I worked in the nursery with babies believing in hope for all people and at this point in my career I'm literally a monitor of human suffering looking to see is what he's going to do, will that cause him to die or not? Which way did he cut his arm? The, the, the level that exists at that point for, for the helping professions, uh, it just, it, it was mind boggling for me how far off track I felt that we had gone. And it got to be very confusing for me because you're surrounded by you know, uh, the American flag and you're thinking we're a country that's progressive on human rights. And yet, you know, your stomach is telling you something different. Um, and as it stands now, we have 80 to 100,000 people across the United States who are currently being held in solitary confinement. Um, so this is an area that is also starting to get more, uh, media coverage, more exposure, um, and and well it should people don't realize don't know what goes on in the recesses of jails and prisons it's a cut off world and that's part of my kind of mission is to bring it out cuz uh, we're Americans are good people we people just don't know
2: how badly yeah, we have to have the front. information and i think that's key obviously your book is uh, uh, you know one very important way to do it, but the information has to get out there. I think, uh, as you're yeah. describing it, I'm thinking as a social worker, this probably a sort of like a denial on the part of the American people. As you say, we are good people. We want to do the right thing, but it's yeah. it's so horrific we don't want to talk about it. You know, we don't want to deal with it, which which is sort of sometimes the human uh, tendency not to want to, to to repress these kinds of things or to. So maybe that's what we do. So let other people take, let the social workers take care of it. You know, it's not actually my problem.
1: Yes. Or or well, you're you're a bleeding heart. <laughs> I got that a lot. Yeah. Before yeah. I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People just turn you off because well, that couldn't be. You must be, you know, just a real bleeding heart. Um, so you have to kind of penetrate uh, layers of you know of denial uh, as you just stated that that sort of thing for people to start to get it that yeah this is real and it is happening right here not in some foreign country right here in new york city and you know right in our communities
2: yeah and i think you have to keep pounding them you know we're talking in the news today we're always, well it's, it's all about the facts the real facts and if you real you, that really has to i think can to come out. What what are the facts? You know, you say, for instance, uh, there are 500 uh, inmates in uh, solitary confinement, but actually, how many of them are really dangerous to the community? You know, very right. very small portion. So we need to hear those facts, and we need to hear them all the time. So, uh, which yeah. is something that you're yeah, that you do in your book, obviously. Um, how did, this is probably my last question because we only have a couple minutes left, but okay. the impact on you, like you said, you know, you went in, people call you a bleeding heart, you're trying to tell them what's going on, you're a social worker, um, <laughs> and that has to be very frustrating. But And you're seeing all of this, I mean, and maybe injustice is, is not even a strong enough word, but so how it, it obviously influenced you to write the book. Okay. To do other things, tell us what what other things are you doing as well to get the word out.
1: Well, uh, I, and yes, it just to go back quickly, it impacted me tremendously. I became very withdrawn, kind of isolated socially, trouble sleeping, uh, depressed. Uh, it definitely um, uh, impacted me deeply. Um, since leaving, I have felt, and having gotten the book published, has been kind of my own personal mission that, that I'm very gratified that the book came about, and since then, um, I I speak everywhere, and, um, you know, radio shows like yours right now, um, i Community situations, schools, law schools, the Bar Association, everywhere that I can go um, to anyone who's willing to listen, church groups, I speak and people will say I didn't know and that's really great. Um, I'm also involved in New York State with trying to get the HALT bill passed, um, which is a humane alternative to long-term solitary confinement. Very involved in that, if we can get that legislation passed, it will have a big impact in New York State. Um, I was really um, just 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 pleased that since the book has come out, it's kind of grown legs that um, um, you know, I've been writing, I've had uh, articles written on the topic and and speaking, and the book won an award for nonfiction, so that got more attention, you know not to me, but to the issue. So that's that's what I continue to try to do.
2: Well, congratulations, okay, okay, okay. because you've been described, and uh, we've had the opportunity this mo- to talk to you. But as an outspoken advocate against the inhumane treatment of the incarcerated, and especially the mentally ill, the title of Mary Booth's book is Lockdown on Rikers, Shocking Stories of Abuse and Injustice at New York's Notorious Jail. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, I assume. Just give us your website. That's one thing that we don't have.
1: Oh, it's com.
2: Okay, that's easy. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm Thank Catherine you. Zox. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mary. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Your voice counts. Call toll-free
0: 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me is uh, today is Ryan Hurljack. He is founder of Ryan's Well Foundation. The Ryan's Well Foundation's accomplishments started with the passion and courage of one six-year-old boy back in 1998. Ryan Hurljack was startled to learn in his grade one class that not all children could simply get a drink from the drinking fountain, as he could. Twenty years later, the Ryan's Well Foundation has helped nearly 1 million people in 16 countries with 1,166 water projects installed and 1,245 latrines completed. Uh, Ryan's story, and we're going to be talking obviously about Ryan's story, uh, today, has been featured in many publications and on shows like Oprah, CNN, Wayne Dreyer, and UNICEF. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Ryan. So
0: nice to be here, Catherine. Thanks for having
2: me. Great to have, yeah. So you're still, you know, six years old. You started this thing. We have to obviously start with that and talk <laughs> about that, but you're still young. What are you, 25 years old?
0: 25, so almost 20 years ago this all started, yeah.
2: What an amazing story. Let's start from the beginning. How does a six-year-old begin a foundation?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, it started with baby steps, I suppose. It was a school project. My thought that uh, we were doing a fundraiser for international development, and it was all kinds of things like blankets and food. And my teacher got to a point on her list uh, when she was going over things we could fundraise when she said $70 would buy a well and then explained to us that kids our age couldn't go to school and were dying because they didn't have clean water and I remember we just did not understand the concept of it because we were so young. So I remember my teacher saying oh, they have to walk uh, something like five kilometers to go get water and we did not know how far five kilometers was. So I remember my teacher tried to explain it to us by saying 5,000 steps which didn't help a six-year-old they couldn't count that high. But I remember counting the steps it took me to get from my classroom to the water fountain and I counted ten. So you know, when you're young, you're taught to share and that the world is fair, and to hear that that wasn't the case really got to me and motivated me to start doing chores around my house, and then it started growing from that.
2: Ryan, uh, I have a question for you, because as you're describing what happened to you in the classroom, you were concerned about uh, what your teacher had said. Are there children who, not unlike you, weren't able or didn't have access to water like you did just walking out in the hallway and drinking from the drinking fountain, but you were six years old. You go home, uh, you, as you said to me, you're, you, you began to think about it. You're concerned about these other children and not having drinking water. What can you do about it? But most six-year-olds don't do that. There has to be something about you, I think, that's special uh, to be able to sort of... Con- <laughs>
0: <laughs> at the end of the day, I don't actually think so. I think when, you know, when I was in kindergarten, you are taught the basic things to share and be kind to your classmates, and I think my teacher did a really good job in helping me emphasize the situation because I didn't look at it as a problem on the other side of the world. It was another six-year-old, someone who was my age, who couldn't go to school, and it was simple enough for me to understand. And it's not that I was an exceptional student or anything, I was very much like to sit in the back I found something that really, you know, sparked something in me. So I was courageous enough to raise my hand and volunteer to do the project, and things happened for me.
2: And your parents, your mother and dad, obviously (laughs) supported you. (laughs) They had to be somewhere in the background.
0: inclination uh, was to go home and ask my parents for the $70, and I thought they would just give it to me because I was being a virtuous good person. And I remember they actually ignored me at first because I was six and they didn't think I was serious or I didn't understand what I was asking and I think I kept on reminding myself about it because it really mattered to me but it got to the point where we were actually having like a Sunday family sit down dinner and I remember my mom had lots of rules growing up one of the biggest ones is that we didn't point Uh, she thought that pointing was the most rude thing uh, someone could do But I remember we were having this dinner, and I pointed right at her, and I said, you don't get it. Someone just died because they don't have clean water, and you didn't help them. So I think I got a timeout after that, but my folks saw that I was serious, so it gave me the opportunity to try to raise the money.
2: It's not to raise the money at six years old.
0: Uh, well, I didn't have an allowance back then, but my folks said, you know what, if you're serious about this, you can do extra chores on top of things you already do, so I already had to do things like clear the table, make my bed, and I was told I had to do things like vacuum, shovel snow, uh, wash windows, and all these things I didn't do before. And In exchange, I got a couple of dollars at the end of each chore, and it took me a long time, actually. It started as a Lent school project, so my timeline was 40 days. And by the time that had gone by, I had only actually raised about $25. So I actually failed at first, but decided to keep on working because when I was a kid, I literally thought that one well would bring the entire world clean water. So it was important. So I kept on working, and it took me four months to finally get the $70, only to find out it was actually going to cost a little over $2,000 to drill a well. To which luckily my math skills still weren't that great. I said I would just do more chores and kept on going.
2: Right, so you kept on going. How well how, you say you kept on going after that when you learned it's going to cost two thousand uh, dollars? How long did you have to keep on going to make the two, or to get the two thousand, earn the two thousand dollars? I guess, or did you get other people involved?
0: Well, my original idea is I wanted to just do more chores, because that's how I got there and I could easily measure how hard I was working and how much I could fundraise. But uh, my parents sat me down and explained to me that if I was going to do this, I was going to expand my comfort zone and have to do things and involve other people. So I started doing chores for my neighbors and I went back to my classroom and started talking to my friends and trying to get them to participate and get involved. To which, at first, it was a hard no. Uh, you know when you're a kid or even an adult, things on the other side of the world aren't really the same issue. And even though I was very passionate about the project, it's not the same for everyone. So I remember I had to get a little bit creative I think for my first uh, fundraiser. I had a Pokemon card fundraiser, raffle sale. so something that had nothing to do with what I was trying to do, but it was something that uh, my target audience, my ears were interested in so, I got a few of my friends involved, and we were able to have a little fundraiser, and then I gave a presentation to my class, and then to the local Rotary Club in my town, and then people who were friends, neighbors, people I didn't even know started coming along, the, along with the project, and a year later, we were able to raise that
2: $2,000. You raised $2,000. That's just one well we're talking about in a country, say like Uganda. I guess you give that as an example, but uh, so that's a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money for just one well. <laughs> um, what? How? Obviously, you took off from there. Uh, so what
0: happened? Uh, well, the well went in, actually in Uganda, in northern Uganda at a school that got the first clean water source that it had ever had. I realized then that As uh, one well wouldn't bring the entire world clean water anymore, just uh, to my dismay. So I kept on fundraising. And then I was lucky I was able to, my neighbors for Christmas one year, they were actually able to give my family air mile points. So we were actually able to go and see the well. And I remember I went and it was this crazy experience uh, at the school where the well was built. There was this big, huge celebration. There were over 5,000 people and there was this feast and celebration. Everyone, Everyone was just so happy just pumped because they had clean clean water and still today i don't have a smile that lights up on my face because i can have a shower in the morning or a glass of water so to see that something that i considered so small negligible have that much of an impact on someone's life that they wanted to celebrate gave me motivation to keep on going so i remember i came back and i was enthused and then. I started talking to more people about it, getting other people involved. I was able to travel all across Canada and the States and around the world to talk about what I was trying to do. Uh, it got picked up as a they did a documentary on when I first went, and it was in the Reader's Digest uh, magazine, and it was on the Oprah show. And we got to the point where we were actually able to start the Ryan's Well Foundation. That would have been 16 years ago now, and now we've been able to bring clean water to over 800,000 people. So it's kind of crazy to see where it started, but with was... Uh, a lot of hard work we were able
2: to get to where we are now. Yeah, I mean, that's such an amazing story. As I'm listening to you, obviously, uh, you're the, there's, you have a charismatic way about you in order to engage people to do this, but, (laughs) well, you have to. Um, It can't be just academic, but also, like, marketing, like, because I'm thinking about uh, water is still a problem, obviously, around the world. I just got back from India, and, um... Uh, I spent six days in Mumbai. It's a big city, 21 million people, but still, they only have access to water. Middle class people in their apartments, for three hours in the morning, and then you know it's collected uh, in um, water towers in the apartment. But it's not the water isn't turned on for more than three hours during the day. Um, anyway, so that's a big city. Yeah.
0: Uh, even in our own backyards, water problems are popping up in Canada. We have problems with Aboriginal communities with access to water in the States, with droughts, with places like Flint. It's something that's not an isolated problem to certain parts of the world. And it just goes to show that we need to be more involved in what happens in our own watersheds and in our backyards as well as across the world.
2: Well, I think when you were six years old and maybe a little bit earlier there were predictions that oh we're going to be buying water in plastic bottles and everyone said oh that's crazy why would we need to buy water well fast forward we're buying our water for all the reasons that you mentioned either droughts or the water is, not, is poison or it's you know so um, here we are but uh, another thing and I just want to sort of emphasize like what you're saying and this is my experience it's recent in India the Largest slum, which is in the middle of the city, that has one million people, in the slum has seven hundred and fifty toilets for one or latrines for one million people. Uh, and that's uh, yeah, that is. Um, I don't want to think about the ramifications, but that's that's just one slum. But anyway, so now. What Did you go to college after this? I mean, what about school? You said you weren't the best student in the world. So what happened? I, I, High well, school. I
0: volunteered all through <laughs> elementary school. I think my all my teachers and my town was very supportive of what I was trying to do. So I got to play hooky once or twice, but uh, we worked hard in school. At the end of the day, I did a lot of homework and car rides and air, airports and whatnot. And then I uh, went to school out in Nova Scotia, Canada. Got my degree there. Worked a few different jobs uh, in construction and uh, was a delivery driver, and then worked for an organization in Ottawa uh, that helped get young people involved in politics. And then started working for Ryan's Well actually two years ago full time. So getting even more engaged with the work we're doing in terms of the project work that was in Uganda, actually for three months last year to help stuff from the ground up because it's important to raise the money and do the work but it's also important to understand the sustainability aspect of it and when we do a project to make sure that it's last and it's there and it's being beneficial to the people that actually need it so we're looking at women, children, and seniors and rural it, disadvantaged areas so it's something that's alright to say but unless you're doing the groundwork to make it happen it's uh, not a reality so that is an also an important part of what we do.
2: Yeah, I think what you said, sustainability, because, yeah, you can get a project off, you can get the funds and, and start the project, but it doesn't it, it, it does, can't sustain itself for reasons. And probably different reasons in different countries. Can you talk about some of the cultural differences in, in terms of, of the projects that you're doing? Cause
0: yeah, absolutely. In terms of sustainability, I think there was a crazy statistic in the 90s uh, in terms of the water field where about like 80% of the wells that were drilled, no longer worked a year later, and for all sorts of different reasons, but I feel like the most important one was because of ownership. Uh, when we do a project at whatever community, it's important to have leadership from the community, because if you have your well on your own property, it's not something that you can just have. you got to take care of it, you have to shock it, you have to participate. So if you have a well that's being shared between 20 households, it gets a little bit more complicated. So it's important to have Community take ownership of the well, so there's someone in charge of the security. They they have a little the ability to set up bylaws for the well, so operate how it's used, who can use it. Sometimes in the communities where we do do work, and people have a tizzy, So every where when I was in Uganda, uh, some bylaws say you have to as a household you have to give a thousand shillings a month. So that's about twenty cents, and then that twenty cents will go into a fund, and that fund will replace you know nuts and bolts get brushes to clean and things like that so it's important to understand that water is a human right but it also is a responsibility and you have to make sure that people uh, understand that and have the capability to protect and uh, sustain themselves.
2: Uh, There's another issue and I've talked to this is not related to women, actually, that young girls, for instance, because they don't have access to water, when they get their periods, they can't. Then they can't go to school; they have to stay home, so they they, they miss school. It impacts on their education. It impacts on their work. Um, I, I think that's something that maybe the you know people don't think about those kinds of things. But so you you know you have half the young population of childbearing age be really being impacted. Uh, their education and their work by by the fact that they're women. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's something that you've dealt um,
0: well, that's something that dealt dealt with. probably one of our important it, mandates, especially at the secondary level, with exactly what you're saying. Uh, the girl education rate will drop off drastically because of those reasons that you're saying, because there won't be a proper place to go to the bathroom and to have their own space. And... That's probably one of the most important work we do at schools, and we've been really successful getting municipal governments to cooperate where we do water projects that they actually build the latrines for girls and boys now. So it's one of the stepping stones That's you know, it sounds a little bit silly. It sounds like, oh, well, water is more important, and you can worry about that stuff later, but it's really uh, what we call a wash training, so water and sanitation hygiene education. So you have to do the whole package to have an impact with attendance and for health. So it's incredible.
2: What kinds of uh, challenges you had in terms of, in different communities, let's say, of individuals or, you know, town governments uh, who don't want you there, uh, for whatever reasons? Uh,
0: well, we, we do work, uh, we were always wanted by the community, and we work with on the ground with municipal governments who want the work done and have their feet held to their fire a lot, a lot better than they used to. So we're able, we're small enough that we can circumvent a lot of the national governments that have a lot of the... Larger aid, uh, watered down and sent to very specific areas. So, we've been really lucky in that regard in terms of a specific basis with each community. I think one per- thing, important thing to remember is that every community is different. And, you know, you could be one place in Uganda and then go four hours down the road and it's a completely different culture, language, uh, just about everything. So, it's important to recognize that it's not necessarily a silver bullet situation. There's not one problem that's gonna fix everything. Oh, this is the way to do it. You have to be adaptable and talk to the community and find out their needs. That's one of the main reasons why we set up water committees that can set up their own bylaws for a well, because some what may make sense for one community may may not make sense with another. I was at a project of ours that we did uh, 10 years ago that was still working, that was done in a little village that's now more of a town. And they were able to do things like start a piggery with the money they were collecting to fix the well because it was doing fine. And they sell water to the prison that's down the road and things like that. And that's not something that you would ever think about originally, but the community knows that and they're the ones who live in there. So the ability to give them the power to do that is paramount.
2: So what you have to do, and I'm looking at it kind of, I guess, from a social work perspective, but you go into these communities and you have to seek out the leaders. I assume, uh, initially. Um, yeah, absolutely. This,
0: One of the yeah. key parts of uh, our water committees and picking out leadership and people engaged is uh, where we think is incredibly important is actually to have women in important roles on the community. So, particularly being the secretary and the treasurer. Because the women are the people who manage the household, and you could have a man on there that doesn't know anything about collecting water and stuff like that. So that's probably the most important thing, is to have good leadership in the community, and particularly if you have good women leadership in the community who have uh, the expertise to deal with these things. It's incredibly important.
2: Because when you go into a country, or you visit, or you... Uh, live in countries the ones that you describe uh, that you serve the you know uh, foundation services. Um, and Women are the ones who are walking to the to the wells that are five miles away with the with with the uh, you know buckets on their heads or vases. Uh, not the men.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's women, children, seniors that have to. Basically, being engaged in this every day, and they're all the ones who will be the task of the household. So, unless you're getting those people involved in the well itself, in managing it, upkeeping it, then it's not going to have the same impact as if you just get involved with the person who wants their name on something or wants leadership for the sake of leadership. So, it's incredibly important.
2: Now let's we have only, we have a few minutes left. Let's get back to the money situation because I know we can go online and you have a great website and people can get involved uh, yeah, and we also have can a donate.
0: But uh, yeah. where we have our active projects listed, we're trying to fundraise for them right now. We work in Uganda, Kenya in East Africa, as well as Ghana, Burkina Faso, and Togo in West Africa, and we also have a lot of work in Haiti. And we're only able to do the work we do because of generous donors from Canada, states, and all around the world who help support our workers, we do. Yeah.
2: Uh, do you have any groups, any particular groups who give you large sums of money?
0: Oh. Uh, I'd say a majority of But That you want to tell us? It <laughs> comes from individuals, schools, and churches that support the work we do. We have a couple of larger donors, but at the end of the day, if we didn't have those smaller donations, we wouldn't be able to do nearly as much work as we do. So they're our key fundraiser.
2: In in terms of fundraising, do you, uh, I mean, obviously the internet, uh, you know, you've been doing this for the past 20 years, I assume with the advent of the internet and you can get donations online, that must help a great deal.
0: Uh, It's different. No? A lot of the people that are involved with Ryan's Well aren't necessarily anonymous people on the internet, but there are people that have been, been involved since the beginning. Like the story, it was kind of cute when it first started. It was, you know, me trying to do tours around my house to raise enough money for a while, and people bought into that. They thought, oh, that kid can do it, I can do something too. But since then, it's been 16 years later, and we're still doing all this work. And. I think it's because those people see the project work we're trying to do and the sustainability aspect and all these different things that we focus incredibly hard on meeting our mission. And so the people that did get involved back then are still involved today. We're able to keep a donor base that's very proud of the work we do. So it's just a matter of getting people, other people engaged and seeing uh, the work we do.
2: Well, you have a track record now, as you say, you have 20 years. You have a track record, and they can see that uh, your projects are sustainable. Um, so, I, what are the goals for from now on? Let's say uh, in in terms well, we just of had a the great foundation. Year last year for
0: 2016 yeah. and for 2017, we just sorted out all our project work that we're hoping to do with our local on the ground partners, and we're excited. It's a new year, and water is something that's at the forefront of people's minds in terms of something domestically and internationally, and I think people are starting to have an impact uh, no matter where it's an issue. So we're excited to keep on going and help promote water as a human right and a clean resource that everyone should have uh, access to.
2: Yeah, I think we've, at least here in the States, I think we've taken it for granted. I mean, most people, many people, but of course now with all the incidents we've had uh, uh, in Michigan and, and, and other states with uh, polluted waters and here in New York State certainly. So, you know, it uh, it's uh, I guess the importance of your project really becomes illuminated considering what's happening everywhere. We, uh, we only have a minute left, so I'm going to have to, or we're going to have to say goodbye. So give us your website uh, that we can go to to get involved On the uh, is if one wants.
0: or just well into Google and you can find us and. Just uh, my message is for everyone out there and all your listeners is that you're never too young or old to make a difference. And whether it's water or something else, don't be afraid to raise your hand and get involved in something. Because if I didn't do that when I was a kid, none of this would have ever come to pass. So don't be afraid to raise your hand when you find something you care about.
2: A great message to say goodbye on. Thanks, Ryan. Ryan Hurljack, founder of Ryan's Well Foundation. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.